Welcome back to Beyond Well. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every week we tackle another topic that helps add to our mental health toolbox. And recently we partnered with TMS Active Recovery to make sure that you or anyone you know who might be experiencing treatment resistant depression know that there is an FDA approved non-pharmaceutical option for treatment that is covered by most insurances. TMS is short for transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it's helpful for people whose antidepressants have stopped working or those whose side effects from pharmaceutical drugs are just too tough to be able to take medication. TMS therapy is covered by most insurance plans and with multiple locations in Oregon and Washington. Learn more at activerecoverytms.com. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives, devoting this program to the topic of mental health in the workplace and workplace wellness. And with that, we've brought you several executives who have just incredible viewpoints on what are some of the initiatives that we absolutely need to be integrating in order to achieve what we call whole health. And today I'm delighted to introduce you to Daryl Tall. In 2021, Daryl joined leading mental health and brain research nonprofit One Mind as executive vice president, overseeing the One Mind at Work programs and contributing to One Mind's vision and objectives. Toll brings more than 20 years of healthcare leadership, as well as personal lived experience of mental health struggles. And before that, he had a 20-year tenure at Advent Health. He held executive leadership roles across the health system's regional divisions. And most recently, he served for six years as the president CEO of its 6 billion, 16 hospital, Central Florida division. Before that, Daryl served as president and CEO of Advent Health Deland from 2006 to 2010. So Daryl, you bring with you so much varied experience. That's a big, big introduction to get through, but I mostly want to say thank you. That was a mouthful. For joining yeah, us. <laughs> it's so good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful, Absolutely. wonderful to have you. You know, I was most taken with you sharing your personal experience about discovering that you too had your own mental health challenges, as so many of us do. Could you talk our audience through that discovery? Sure, absolutely. Actually, I knew since college, I had a very traumatic experience while I was in college that I didn't realize some weeks after when I started having panic attacks that it was related. But I did think I was really not doing well. Losing it may lose my mind or was having physical health issues that were causing me to feel like my heart was racing. It really had a significant impact. Didn't know what was happening until I finally went to a psychiatrist who helped me recognize that I had an anxiety disorder and got me on medication. And we did talk therapy as well. And it really helped to stabilize the mm -hmm. situation. And he told me, this is likely to be with you for your whole life. It, it'll probably come and go depending mm -hmm. on what you're experiencing in your life. I didn't tell anybody. I, I was very quiet. I was embarrassed that I had a mental health diagnosis. I was very hesitant, thought it would impact my friends, thought it would impact my ability to get a job. So I was very, very quiet. 
And when I got my first job and I started to get promotions and grow in various leadership roles, I was quiet. And I had more of these instances where rather than being more of what I would call my normal functioning, I would have these periods where the anxiety blanket would come down and I would feel impaired but I would bluff my way through just Mm -hmm. kind of sheer force of energy and will would just get through. Mm -hmm. I would get help because I knew I needed help. So that's good. (laughs) That was one good thing I did. But I would go two counties over to see a therapist. I would keep the medication off of the benefits structure so my company wouldn't see it. I was very afraid of having that asterisk after my name. So I lived like that and grew into very significant roles. And I had this moment where I was asked to speak at my son's college. And they asked me because I was a business leader and they wanted me to talk like business leaders do up front about that. And it just hit me. You know, when I was in college, this anxiety hit me and it's been with me and I've had to kind of manage the whole time. Why don't I talk about that? Hmm. So I sat down with my son and uh, I hadn't talked to even the kids about this. If if you can believe that, that's pretty dysfunctional, but I hadn't. And so uh, he said, oh, yeah, of course, that'd be great. Uh, the younger generation seems to be a lot better at this than, than I am. And so I did. I went and spoke to 3,000 or so students about um, my experience in college and after college and what it's been like. And it really struck me because kids lined up down the aisle afterward to talk to me. And I stayed after and I talked to student after student about what they were experiencing. And I realized what a mistake it's been not to be open about this. I literally, it hit me right then talking to those students. I've got to go back to work and I've got to open up more to my team. So I I started with my executive team and then opened up across the entire leadership team and then even the community. And it was really fun and exciting and meaningful to be whole (laughs) to be open about who I was to acknowledge it and then to see how that helped and impacted other people and that's a lot of why um, I'm where I am now but it it was quite quite the experience. I love that you um, reflect back on your former self as saying why did I do this but in reality you did it for reasons that are grounded in very good business skills. A, you want to be seen as keeping your head down. B, you don't want to be seen as needing extra accommodation or extra handholding to get you through these things. But do you think that the awareness of mental health challenges in the workplace has changed enough for people to now be able to be more upfront with actually what they're coping with? I really hope so. There are a number of things that are true that I know now that I didn't know then. I was raised, and I think in many ways, um, school and business school teaches you to be on stage and to represent a version of yourself rather than your real self in leadership or in prominent positions. And I think that's common and people learn to compartmentalize, which isn't healthy, but they do learn that. And I learned those skills. Absolutely. Now I realize several things. One, strength and struggle go together. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a fundamental linkage. The things I've learned from my struggle, including from therapy, are incredible leadership skills. Yeah. <laughs> so the things I've learned in therapy have made me a better leader, and I should just embrace that. 
The second thing I've learned is that the pretense of perfection is of no value to struggling people. Right. And leaders really only exist. In fact, let's just say all human beings exist best to help other human beings thrive, period. And if that's true, then pretending to be perfect is a very selfish act because mm. I'm not being vulnerable enough to help other people be vulnerable and to know I can be part of their story instead of above their story somehow. And so uh, we're all in this together, you know, we're walking through, muddling through and struggling together and we're best together. We're, we were made to be best together. So I think a combination of this strength and struggle paradigm and the reality of vulnerability making us more useful to other people thriving are essential lessons learned for me and, uh, and very joyful. And I guess the third thing is not being real hurts people. It hurt me. Not to be real, there's a lot of dysfunctional elements to those compartments you build. And it's important to, to somehow blow those walls up and be yourself when you're living your whole life and your whole purpose. Oh, my God. I don't think I've ever heard it said more powerfully as to why the C-suite and leadership should get involved in mental health initiatives. I think that that was just exactly the three-minute sermon that everyone needed to hear. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Daryl, because I think when I talk to most senior leaders, the thing that they're most afraid of is not being vulnerable. It's saying they don't want to be seen as comparing their privileged lives to the lives of their employees who may be at a far less economic advantage and really probably struggling with things that they can't imagine. And so they're very sensitive about that issue of we don't have the same level of struggle. So how would you say people work through that? Well, I think it's a, it's a natural concern and there are real uh, us and them dynamics. There's no question. And there is real privilege in it, and it is difficult. The more leaders are silent and the more they, they allow stereotypes to define them, the less real they are. And the more likely they are to be characterized yep. on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And people love to hate a person on a pedestal, knock them off when they can. And the more we buy in as leaders to the head of the table, the special seat, the entourage, and silence on our struggles, the more we play into that storyline. And in fact, I think sometimes the hesitation is really that we like that storyline of, leaders being superheroes. And we kind of buy into it ourselves and we're afraid to unlock it or open that up. It is true that there is economic benefit and a lot of positive aspects of leadership. But at the same time, people struggle <laughs> mightily, every individual. And if we can open the doors to the commonalities, a lot of rich people are much more miserable than people without that level of wealth. And yes. it's not uncommon at all for people to have profound struggles in life and deep pain. And the more we're open about that, the more it equalizes. It becomes all of us together. It's an interesting and difficult point, mm -hmm. but the more we can realize that we're all standing on the same level, kind of working together and fighting yeah. together, I think we'll be better off. So talk a little bit about One Mind and sort of where you are in this discussion about really achieving something called whole health in the workplace. Mental health in the workplace, mental health struggles have been accelerating for yeah. a number of years before COVID. The pandemic 
has accelerated those. I'll say that the, the house was on fire before COVID and COVID was kerosene. And so many dynamics, you know, the whole value we all bring to our workplace is our brain. Yeah. It, it's the center of it all. It's the center of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. It's the center of conversations around uh, physical health and thriving and well-being. Mm -hmm. and, and it really takes a new kind of leader to address those things and to lead effectively so that th this can be addressable and improve an organization. So One Mind at Work is a movement led by business leaders. We gather business leaders who all sign a commitment that says four things. One, we will reduce the stigma around mental health in our workplace mm -hmm. by speaking openly about our own stories and struggles and by making it safe to do so on part of our team. Mm -hmm. Two, we will address work design. We have to be real about that and we have to address it. Three, we'll make sure people have access to mental health services and support because they're part of our team and yeah. we care about them. And four, we're going to innovate and invest because there aren't enough licensed therapists in the world to help us provide licensed therapy to everyone who needs it. But many people just need a listening ear, a trained manager, a peer supporter, mm -hmm. uh, a mental health ally, somebody who can assist in the midst of a tough day, stress, um, or the challenges of daily work. Leaders get together and do that, and then they agree to have organizational assessments done, and they make annual plans and share information together, and it's inspiring to watch, but that's, that's how we work. Our goal is a multi-year, steady, steady, step-by-step -step improvement in global workplaces on this topic. One of the things that is difficult to measure when people are talking about overall health is what we call return on investment. And I want to hear your thoughts about return on investment when it comes to mental health, because for me, it's one of the most innocuous uh, topics that I have to come up against. So I'd love to hear what you say when people say, what's my ROI on that? Well, I think a lot of companies make a mistake when they talk about well-being. And you'll read articles even now that say well-being efforts don't pay off in the workplace. Our position is, and, and our learning, our lessons learned are that well-being programs often create structures where companies tell individuals to go do things so they can be healthy. Mm -hmm. We're going to tell people to climb the stairs, don't drink diet soda, meditate every two hours. And if they do that, they'll be healthier. And then when they go and don't do that, they won't be healthier. And we yeah. call it a failure. We say leaders hold the steering wheel. You own the machinery that can help people thrive even if they do nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's the first important point is that leaders actually have a responsibility to design workplaces and benefit structures and tools and a culture that helps people thrive even if those people aren't climbing the stairs and if they are drinking diet soda and maybe they're even overweight or smoking, they can still thrive more because mm. of the work leaders do. In that context, when leaders own it and they build organizations where thriving can happen, the ROI is significant. Turnover does go down. Engagement is high. Presenteeism is lowered. Absenteeism is lowered. It's profound. Physical health costs and chronic disease impact are improved by focusing on the brain and mental health and thriving. If an organization does it as a technical checklist, yeah. well, we have an EAP and well, 
we told people not to drink diet soda. If that's the approach, it's hard to argue that the ROI is clear. Yeah. If the approach is really transformational, mm. um, it is incredible to see the impact. I'm very curious, Daryl, how you feel about the number of companies that are kind of fully mental health awareness and the quality of honoring all neurodivergent people in the workplace under diversity, equity, and belonging. Is that the right place for it? Is that the place where it finally gets its due? You know, the right place in an organization is probably anywhere where it has a seat at the most senior executive table. Oh my um, God, hold on, say so that critical. again. It's that so is critical. So, so good. If that's, <laughs> if that's DE&I, then that's DE&I. If yeah. that's people, then that's people. If that's in operations under the COO, then that's where it should be. It's critical that the most senior team at that small table is talking about the brains of their team mm. and the thriving of their team. Mm-hmm. And if it's not directly linked there, which is why our, our efforts at OneMind are focused on the C-suite, start with the C-suite, because yeah. until there's ownership there and real action and commitment there, it is so hard to start these things from the grassroots. It's been tried over and over and over again, but it's terrifying yeah. to talk about mental health first from the front lines. Unfortunately, yeah. that's the reality. Oh my gosh. Okay. What are the impacts of peer support programs? Why are they important in the workplace? What are some of the examples of companies that have done it where it's really worked well? It's so powerful to have teams that are trained to recognize early symptoms, to check in with each other. It's back to love and relationships, right? And when we're in that kind of warmth, of an environment, whether we're virtual or in person, it improves the culture of the organization. And peer support networks with great training show real promise. Uh, The Air Force is a great example of they have a buddy system. If somebody Mm -hmm. starts to struggle, they will put somebody with another person who acts as their buddy. They probably have a different term for it, probably an acronym, if I'm honest. But they have somebody that they they attach the the struggling individual to and try to keep them in the role, even in the midst of struggle with their buddy, but they can work a little bit less. They get that kind of support and they get help from a trained person that helps to carry them through. They've had tremendous success with that. And that is a very robust peer support network. Other organizations, it's a a little bit lighter. People get some training. They're trained to recognize struggle, call it out. Some teams develop action words where if a team member says it, they get an immediate break and everyone covers for them. Whatever it is, we need that in life and our teams need that. When uh, we had Andrea Heron on who just wrote the great book, There's an Elephant in Your Office, she was talking about the crucial need for managers to have this kind of training because of the lack of true understanding about mental health access that it is apart from the company, that the company can't track your doctor's visit, that the company can't fire you for having a mental health concern. And she was saying, if we could just get managers to be aware of mental health policy and procedures, then we could probably win half the battle. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I agree completely. Um, In fact, uh, we think the best organizations, the most mature organizations will require managers to be mental health certified. Wow. 
think about allowing leaders to lead without understanding how human beings think or function best. Now, I think a company that paused and thought about that, they'd say, oh, wow, that, that, that doesn't feel right. Um, Bell Canada, one of our members, um, a leader in getting uh, Canada workplace standards in place, they require every manager to be mental health certified. You become a leader at Bell Canada, you're going to be mental health certified. That's transformational to the culture because now those managers know how to talk about this. Mm. They know what's safe to do legally and not. They know how to recognize symptoms among their team and how to engage and have conversations on the team. They know how to tell their own stories. They learn a lot of those kinds of skills. Imagine a management team that is certified, knows it's required, takes it seriously. That will transform organizations. So ideally, in the next few years, that will become normal. The companies will, will require this level of training for managers. I think she's absolutely right. It it is the elephant in in the office. And (laughs) there's a blind spot. Leaders, executive leaders surveyed in a McKinsey survey, uh, 74% of them said that they were doing well or very well around mental health support in the workplace. 27% of the frontline said they were doing well or very well. That gap is a blind spot. Yeah. Leaders think they're doing a lot better than they are. The scary thing is if you cut the leadership portion into slices, some of the most positive or blinded individuals are in HR and benefits. They're in the 90s saying they're doing well or very well. So you can imagine the people responsible for benefits and human resources are further from the front line even than the CEOs are. We have got to address that in our company. I was just talking with a HR leader of a very large company here locally, and she was telling me that they, um, in their pulse surveys, always ask the question, does our company support your well-being? And I said, I wonder how you would score if you asked the question, does our company support your mental health? Do you think there's a difference? And do you think that the employee would answer differently if asked those two questions? Yeah, I I think we have to stop using soft words, right? We feel like, well, it's safe to talk about well-being, but the less specific our questions are, the more likely we're going to get non-specific information. If we want to really understand our team's perspectives on how we're supporting their physical health, their mental health, workplace happiness, whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be, we should use specific language. It's not dangerous to talk about mental health. Mental health is a continuum that we're all on. Right. Just like physical health. I'm on the mental health continuum. So are you. And so is every person in the universe. So that continuum is safe to talk about. Right. And if people are hesitant, that's a natural outcome of a stigma in their organization that needs to be addressed. So that's the real conversation. And I think the more we get to real questions of our teams, yes, it's easy to say, um, yeah, well-being feels, feels okay here, but how am I interpreting that? I could interpret that in a hundred different ways. Do you know the question that I think never gets asked by um, most HR directors during this time? How much of your anxiety, stress, or depression is related to your work? It's almost as if they don't want to hear the real story about deadlines and 24-hour Zoom and the kind of stress that families have been under during the pandemic. You're so right, Daryl, about this soft language that you just referred to. Well, we know the data says that the top two stressors in life are work and money. Yep. 
And if that's true, um, third is family, by the way. Work is work. Money is work, isn't it? I mean, if right. we're honest, yeah. those two are deeply related <laughs> to each other. Or lack so thereof. So the top two, or lack thereof. So the top two um, are work-related. And we have to be real about that because we are in our workplaces. We are stress generators and we can make it better. A great psychiatrist I know, um, Tom Insel, just wrote the book Healing. Great book. Talks fundamentally about these issues. But he said, Daryl, you know, if you take a group of people and they have a sense of self-efficacy, they can make decisions about how they spend their time and a strong sense of purpose, yeah. they can handle a lot of cognitive load. Right. Another way to say that would be stress, right? They can handle a lot of stress yeah. if they have self-efficacy and a sense of purpose. And I think in workplaces, we need to think, okay, we won't always be stress-free places, but we can create more thriving and better resilience by really having choices, leadership at the staff level, and that strong articulation of our purpose. Oh my gosh. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I have promised <laughs> you that I will keep you at. So let me just review. Um, I just want to ask you, speaking of all of the adoption of technical tools, what would you say are the shortcomings and potential of these technical tools when it comes to our workplace programs? Well, there's a last mile problem. Um, so when companies have, almost every company has an EAP or an employee assistance program. Yeah. Um, they have on average 2% of team members using it, even though we know it should be closer to a quarter or more of team yeah. members using it. When companies say, well, then I'm going to go buy this really nice polished uh, digital mental health therapy app. Those are amazing. You know, they're doing a great job. Th these founders, these new companies are, are adding access and it's phenomenal. People are putting tools in place to, to measure better and assess risk better. And they're in, incorporating in some rare cases, wearables and other things to understand stress levels and to help their team members that way. As all of that happens, as all of those things are purchased, they're underused and companies are scratching their heads. Why are things being underused? Yeah. And that's back to the cultural dynamic. If there is fear in your organization about using these tools and capabilities, they will not be used. Things will not be spoken of. And so culture is step one in almost everything in business, but it really has been underemphasized here. And, and we think that all those technical things and education programs are great. But from the top, we need to start talking very openly and vulnerably on this topic and, and fighting hard to reduce that stigma. And then everything else will start to take flight yeah. and, and will work better as a result. You know, that reminds me when I wrote my first book, I was doing a lot of research and looking at the outcomes of people who had previously been hospitalized for severe mental illness and to a T, those who had been able to go on and maintain fairly normal lives named one person who had been kind to them, who walked them through the trouble, who was there for them as a listening ear. So I'm really just accentuating your point, Daryl, that it is human beings who solve this problem. It is not ever going to be our tools. It's humans helping other humans. Really, that's what I would argue leadership is for. Yeah. <laughs> it's to help build organizations where humans help other humans and, and where teams work together to aid thriving. That's very well said. 
uh, I'm going to end this interview with you and go back and listen to every word you said again, because I think that this is like required listening for people both in business school and at the highest levels of leadership, Gerald, because let's hope that we can get a new kind of braver, more vulnerable leader. Yeah, I think we can and we should, and they'll be the best leaders of the future. And um, we'll, we'll see organizations thrive when that happens. Daryl Tall has been our guest today. And if you love the program, as so many of you have told us you do, please give us a thumbs up on Apple. Apple is the one podcast platform where you can review us and tell us what you like. And you can always email me at Sheila at Beyond Well Media if you have other types of suggestions for programs you'd like to see covered. Thank you for listening and make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.